GU Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from ASI Europe Limited. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GU Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to this podcast on the role of uh, VGFR TKIs in the treatment of advanced uh, kidney cancer alone or in combination. Uh, my name is Georg Kutter. I am a senior staff member at the Department of Urology of the Medical University of Graz. And I am really delighted and honored to be joined today by Thomas Pauls, who is a professor of genital urinary oncology. Uh, he's the director at the Bats Cancer Center, one of the most advanced cancer centers in Europe and lead for solid tumor research in London, UK, and uh, uh, without doubt represents one of the most prolific and I would say influential contemporary researchers worldwide regarding advanced and metastatic kidney cancer. So welcome, uh, Professor Powell's. Well, thank you for that extraordinary introduction. It's very sweet of you. I, I, some of it's true, I think. <laughs> <laughs> The Thomas, the, the landscape of the, the various uh, approved medical treatment modalities for advanced and uh, uh, metastatic uh, RCC changed dramatically, let's say, over the last 15 years, uh, providing impressive survival benefits, particularly, but not only in the clear cell, uh, renal cell carcinoma. And there have been a number of important uh, phase two and three studies over the past couple of years involving uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors especially in combination with the new immunotherapies. And this is reflected in the recent guideline updates. Now, you had a key involvement in various of these updates. For example, you're the first author of the brand new, I would say, update of the ESMO clinical practice guidelines from September. Uh, you're as well a co-author of the recent EAU uh, renal cell carcinoma treatment recommendations from the European uh, Association of Urology uh, published at end of May by Professor Betkev. Maybe you could give us a, a, an overview and take us through the recommended systemic treatment modalities for patients with advanced uh, renal cell carcinoma. Yeah, thank you, Jorg. So I think that there's been a seismic change in the last five years, and we've moved now from frontline VEGF-targeted therapy, which was sunitinib or pazopinib, to frontline PD-1 inhibition-based therapy, which is with nivolumab or pembrolizumab. The question is, what second drug do you add to these? And there are two current approaches. One is to add a CTLA-4 inhibitor. Um, the first trial was Checkmate 214, ipilimumab, and nivolumab. And we've just seen the five-year update of that data with a hazard ratio of 0.68 in the intermediate and poorest population. That data looks terrific. And then the second approach is to add in a VEGF TKI. And there are three combinations there. Keynote 426, that is the AXI-PEMBRO trial. That showed a higher response rate, a longer PFS, but also initially a hazard ratio of 0.53 for survival. Um, that is now currently 0.73 at the most recent update. Um, and so that established um, axi pembro in good, intermediate, and poorest patients. The next trial came out was 9ER. That looked at cabo nevo. The survival signal of that looked very similar. 
And then the final trial is the clear trial, levatinib and pembrolizumab. That came out most recently, has a ratio for PFS 0.39, 73% response rate, data looks great. Has a ratio for survival, also statistically significant. And so that has joined Axipembro and Cavoneo as an option for good, intermediate and porous patients. So good, intermediate and poor, any of the three VEGF TKIs, intermediate and poor, Ipinevo. At progression, we don't have much data because all the frontline trials have changed everything. So we've got a series of single-arm, relatively small trials looking at Cabo, Axitinib, Pazopinib. There's some retrospective data on Tivozinib out of Tivo3. And all of those drugs look to have response rates of about 20%. This is much weaker evidence. It's level 3B evidence as opposed to level 1A evidence. But the reality is we've got ongoing randomized trials in this space now, which is trying to address these questions. Sequencing drugs is still important, but getting PD-1-based therapy up front is also really important. So great. Thanks for this uh, overview, Thomas. And now uh, may I ask you, which, which approach do you use personally? Well, you know, I think my message to people is that I don't mind which of those regimes people use, but do, do learn how to do it and choose one and do it well. Because it's more challenging than sunitinib and pazopinib to give combination therapy, either ipinevo or VEGF-TKI uh, IO therapy. Um, there's more toxicity, there's more complexity, there's issues around which drug to, to discontinue, how long to continue for. Sunitinib and pazopinib were quite straightforward. When patients got into trouble, they stopped the drug and they got better. That's not the case with these new drugs. With Ipinevo, the combination period during the first 12 to 16 weeks is quite challenging. The patient is likely to develop toxicity and that requires careful management using a multidisciplinary approach. The attractive components of Ipinevo is after those first 16 weeks, patients essentially on nivolumab monotherapy, which is actually well tolerated. On top of that, Ipinevo has the longest follow-up data and has maintained its overall survival signal. The VEGF-TKI um, immune combinations and LEN-PEN, Cabo-Nevo, Axipembro all show very similar things. They show higher response rates, really good disease control. Ipinevo doesn't have as good uh, response rates or as good disease control. They show great tumor shrinkage and they show great progression-free survival. They are probably easier to give during the first 12 weeks because you can just stop the VEGF TKI and for many patients, the, the toxicity gets a bit better. Sometimes, yes, with colitis, you've got to give steroids. With pneumonitis, you have to give steroids. But it's a bit, it, honestly, it's a bit easier. On top of that, we don't yet know whether we're going to maintain those OS signals that Ipinevo seems to be doing. There is some data to, to suggest that Ipi is good for longer term outcomes. We don't know that yet, but this is a this is a field that's evolving. So you've asked me a direct question, which do I use? And my direct reply to that is I would rather we'd learn more about how to give the drugs than picked one that we think is best. If you look at the data sets that are in, in front of us for the VEGF TKI immune combinations, The hazard ratio and the response rates for PFS 
for levatinib pembrolizumab look really impressive. They've got a 0.39 PFS and they've got a response rate in the 70%. That data points looks great. For the Cabo Nevo data, the quality of life data looks really attractive. The Cabo is given at 40 milligrams. I can see that being attractive for some people. I can see other people saying, you know, Cabo's a great drug, Nevo's a great drug. I want to give those two together. So I can see that being attractive. And then for Axipembro, the first combination to come out, it's got the longest follow-up. Axitinib is probably the easiest of all the VEGF TKIs to give. It has a short half-life, making that really important management toxicity, in my perspective, probably the easiest. So I can see why that's attractive as well. As I said before, pick one and use it well. Okay. Thanks a lot for the for the good answer. I mean, so would you, maybe this is a provocative uh, question, but uh, I... I we know that Tony Kuairi from from uh, Boston Harvard. I think he gave a very well uh, lecture at the ESMO um, now in September at the virtual, where he's talking about optimizing the first line treatment in metastatic clear cell RCC. And w- would you agree with him? I mean, his last slide I remember uh, talking about systemic therapy, uh, where he said theoretically, if you don't have a, ve- a very rapid progression, no need for immediate response. He would either go for uh, Nevo versus IO plus VGF if you need a fast response, maybe if the, the candidate is not ideal for immunotherapy, like autoimmune diseases, if the tumor burden is very high? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. It's become quite complicated because you, you can't give Ipinevo to the good risk patients. It's not licensed in that indication. Many patients with slower growing tumors have good risk disease. So you can't really give Ipinevo to that group of patients. I think one of the issues is I'm not sure the IMDC classification for good, intermediate and poor risk is a good molecular classification. It doesn't tell us which tumours are biologically going to respond to immune therapy. It's a classification based on on, on risk factors, um, which are clinical risk factors. We have developed new molecular biomarkers. We're developing them. Brian Rinney and Bob Motzer had a cancer cell paper recently defining seven molecular classifications for renal cancer. And two of those are immunogenic and three of them are VEGF targeted. And it may be actually that it's better to do a molecular analysis rather than the IMDC classification to work out which patients need immune combination therapies, but more importantly, which need that VEGF backbone. Because for some patients, if you give Epinevo, unfortunately, the cancer progresses through. And that's a real problem for a significant group of patients. And so Tony's right, because what he's saying is if you give more indolent tumors Epinevo, most of those you could then rescue with VEGF targeted therapy if you want to. But the challenge with that is many of those patients will be good risk disease and you can't give it to them anyway. Um, so I agree with Tony, but I think the solution to this ultimately, would be to move to better biomarkers. Another question, just because uh, also I, I Tony Quarry mentioned, uh, what about, I mean, if adjuvant immunotherapy becomes sometimes a reality, which, which seems also only a matter of time, uh, I, I guess the, the treatment in the first line will, will even get more complicated than it, than it already is. You, you would agree with that? Yes, it will complicate the issue. 
And maybe the most important question there, Jorg, is what happens if patients progress soon after or on immune therapy? Should they be treated with more immune therapy or should they get single agent VEGF TKI therapy? And I guess one of my questions to you was, are you still in your practice? Is single agent VEGF TKI therapy, is that something that you're still using widely? No, in the first line, no, no. No, I mean we 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 stick to the to the combinations in first line. Uh, if the patient is eligible, um, we especially here by I think it's the general way in Austria. We have like tumor boards uh, once a week with the Department of Oncology. So uh, I would never, for example, switch a treatment uh, uh, alone without without talking to to an experienced oncologist in this setting. We, with single-agent VEGF-TKI therapy, there is a debate in the IMDC good risk population, and that debate is gaining momentum. The reason why that's the case is in the forest plot analysis of the Cabo-Nevo, Axi-Pembro, and Len-Pen trials, there's a clear survival benefit in the intermediate and poorest patients, but in the good risk patients, the confidence interval always crosses the one barrier. Now, there are two reasons for that. Number one is it's an, it's an exploratory analysis of a subset that's underpowered. And because the patients have favorable risk disease, there are relatively few events. So the confidence intervals are wide. Nevertheless, they are hovering around the one area. And some people say, well, if they're hovering around the one area, why would you want to give combination therapy when you can give single agent therapy? The ESMO and the EAU guidelines group both feel that because the combination is associated with higher response rates and better PFS and the OS is still immature, we don't yet know that there isn't going to be a really big significant tail to that curve. So as it's an exploratory analysis, I think it's reasonable to give it the benefit of the doubt. But actually, as that changes, if the data was to change with time and the meta-analysis becomes stronger, then perhaps people may go in a different direction. So thanks. Now, we've talked here about the efficacy. Um, I mean, the, another problem is there is no robust phase three data how to how to move on in the second and higher lines. But I mean, this is an own would be an own question. The, uh, I would like to ask you, sticking to uh, immunotherapy, uh, I mean, the side effects sometimes require us to implement various dosing strategies. Can you maybe tell us which side effects uh, you are most concerned about for your tre uh, patients and how you manage them? Yes, of course. Um, I, and thank you. I think the first issue is what do we do in, in patients whose cancers have progressed after VEGF TKI immune therapies or immune immune therapies? And to answer your question directly, I don't know. No one does. We haven't done enough great trials. We're doing those trials at the moment and we'll find out in two or three years time. As it currently stands, the ESMO and the EAU guidelines are aligned and essentially is it's use a VEGF TKI that you've not used already. Many people favor cabazacinib because that's a, a drug which many people use. I'm very keen on axitinib also, but if I use axipembro frontline, which I quite like frontline, then why not give cabazacinib second line? There's no evidence currently that adding an immune therapy on top of that is of any benefit. And in terms of the side effects, the side effects of this VEGF-TKI, you can expect to be similar as 
before, the one difference, Jorg, which I think is really relevant, is if you sequence the VEGF TKI directly after the immune therapy. Immune therapy has a longer half-life and you're likely to get more side effects at the beginning because you're going to get the VEGF TKI immune combination. So let's say the patient 12 weeks into Ipinevo, they progress in the liver and you want to give them a, veg, a VEGF TKI. If you give them CABO, like within a week, they'll then be on CABO Ipinevo because Ipinevo will still be in the system. And that's associated with the transaminitis and it's associated with other immune-related toxicity. So be really careful of that. That's something which has caught out my group before. So Thomas, uh, may I ask you, how are you uh, managing the side effects uh, if you still treat a patient with a single agent, VGF or TKI? Because I mean, we, we have much more also in, in terms of, of years of treatment uh, uh, coming up, like almost like over a decade, right? Like with sunitinib and serafinib and so on and so forth. Uh, experience is much longer than with the immunotherapy. Uh, so what are your thoughts about this? So my thoughts about the management of VEGFTK, single-agent VEGFTKI therapy is I think at the moment um, the really important thing is that you establish patients on the right dose of drug during the first four to six weeks. I say to patients, look, you're going to start this drug. We're going to start on this dose. If you have side effects or you don't like it, miss a day here, miss a day there, wait till those side effects go. Give us a ring, of course. But the reality is that what we're doing during the first part of this is we're giving everyone a high dose to start with and then we're going to see how you get on. And it may well be that you end up on a lower dose. So don't be surprised if you get side effects, um, the classic side effects of hypertension and hand and foot syndrome, lethargy, diarrhea, mucositis. They are pretty much for all of the VEGFTKIs, some a bit higher, some a bit lower, but in the grand scale of things, all are possible. What I would say from there is that once you're established on that dose and you've gone chronic VEGF-TKI therapy, it's really important that patients don't put up with bad toxicity because some patients feel they have to just keep going on the cancer drug and they can't possibly miss it. And actually, there was a recent study called the STAR study, which, so, which looked at intermittent sunitinib. And actually, it's probably okay to have significant treatment breaks if patients really need them. And so missing a week for a holiday or a family wedding or missing a few days here and there, stopping for diarrhea, resetting the diarrhea and restarting, all of these models are attractive. And the same to some extent applies in combination therapy. The one difference in combination therapy with immune therapy is if you've got diarrhea, for example, or the patient develops diarrhea, you need to make sure that that's not purely immune-related diarrhea because patients would need steroids under those circumstances. So it's reasonable with mild toxicity to stop the VEGF TKI and see the adverse events go away. But if they don't go away, or heaven forbid they get worse, then you need to intervene with steroids. And that's why it's much more complicated giving the combination rather than the monotherapy. Yeah, thanks, uh, uh, Thomas, uh, for the for for your insights and the, I think the very interesting discussion. And uh, um, maybe uh, could I uh, ask you to give just a short summary of what uh, what um, we talked about? Your thank you for all the questions. I think that essentially, it's a, the important thing is I think everyone now recognizes that kidney cancer, clear cell kidney cancer, particularly, has changed. That PD one based therapy with either VEGF-TKIs 
or with uh, CTA4 inhibition is now the standard frontline care. I think we're showing long-term durable benefits that we didn't see before. We're seeing longer progression-free survival. We're seeing much better results. The question is, for me now, can we in Europe translate those clinical trial results into real-world data and make sure that we get these drugs into patients safely? As I said previously, there's serious toxicity issues that need to be addressed to maximize the outcome of the patients. And the final bit is we're now developing triplets and I hope biomarkers, which will continue the story and perhaps improve outcomes further. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you again for the, for the great discussion. It was, was good talking to you and uh, I would say goodbye. Have a, have a nice day. You as well, Jörg. Love you to see you. Thanks for the questions. This podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.